0: the news magazine on the america out loud network i'm alana friedman and this is the friedman report where is kim jong-un that is the deep mystery of the week and it's a big one because as you know kim jong-un is the supreme leader of north korea the driver of its nuclear ambitions and the potential launcher of deadly missiles aimed at its neighbors, like Japan, and South Korea, and even at us. But Kim Jong-un hasn't been seen since April 11th, and when on April 15th, North Korea commemorated the 108th birthday of Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, and Kim Jong-un's grandfather, the current supreme leader, was distinguished by his absence. This celebration is one of the most important public events in North Korea, and Kim Jong-un hasn't missed it since he came to power in 2014. So his absence was unprecedented and widely noticed. He also missed Army Day celebrations on April 25th, another event that he was certain to attend, but he didn't. Kim's health has always been a question. He has been known to be a heavy drinker, a chain smoker, and a binge eater. And he's thought to weigh about 280 pounds. So the idea that he would have serious health issues is not so far-fetched. And the recent rumors that he recently underwent heart surgery have been confirmed by the North Korean media, which reported that Kim Jong-un had undergone a cardiovascular procedure, although they were quick to state that he had largely recovered from the operation. But the fact that he was not seen since mid-April is unusual at best and ominous at worst, because in the event that Kim succumbs to a debilitating illness and dies, the ensuing instability brought about by the fight for succession could lead to enormous volatility or worse, And a North Korean War of Thrones could be devastating not only for the country itself, but for its neighbors, South Korea, Japan, and even China. On April 22nd, when I first heard from a confidential source that Kim had undergone heart surgery on April 12th, I also heard that it hadn't gone well, and it was the first clue that something was amiss in the hermit kingdom. It was later reported that the surgical team was Chinese, And that as of April 27th, they are now being detained subject to an investigation. Then the Japan media reported that Kim was now comatose in a vegetative state. And a usually reliable Chinese source reported that Kim was already confirmed dead, probably as the result, she said, of a mishap in the operating room, what some in the media have called a botched surgery. And while there are also other stories, one that he was injured during a missile test and another that he had just collapsed during a walk in the country, those don't seem so likely considering his long absence and the persistent reports of his deteriorating condition. Now, a South Korean official has said that the country knows where Kim is located and they have guessed, although there is no certainty about it, that the dictator's absence from public appearances could just be ascribed to social distancing. That seems ridiculous on its face, but this is the hermit kingdom, and one never knows. I guess it's possible. Here's another clue about what may really be going on. Satellite photographs indicate that the train that is reserved for Kim and his family is parked at the leadership railway station at the family compound in Wonson, and has been there since April 21st. So another speculation has it that Kim is essentially hiding out there to protect himself from being infected by COVID-19. And here's something else that's mildly interesting. According to Satellite Photos, Sometime after the train was first detected at the station during the period between April 21st and April 23rd, the train was repositioned to be ready to leave the compound, but there's no indication that it ever did. If Kim is alive, it may just be waiting for his orders to leave when he decides it's ready and he's safe to leave for whatever reason. If he's no longer alive, then it may be waiting for orders to take his body for public viewing and burial. And if he is comatose and dying, which is, to my mind, the most likely situation, they may just be waiting. Nevertheless, South Korean sources are continuing to support the view that he is, as they say, alive and well. And his presidential office has also put out a statement that Kim is handling the affairs of state normally and nothing suspicious is going on. But he still hasn't been seen at all in over two weeks, and the persistent rumors are becoming more believable with every passing day. So let's say that Kim really is dead or dying. What will happen if he really dies? You can see that the story is muddled at best, and we really don't have any definitive idea of what Kim's real situation is or what the timetable might be. But supposing Kim is really dead, what is likely to happen next? Well, in North Korea, there is a line of succession that until now has led from father to son, from Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, to his son, Kim Jong-il, to his son, Kim Jong-un. But if Kim Jong-un dies, there is no one to succeed him. The order of succession in North Korea requires that the offspring of the Supreme Leader should succeed him in the event of his death. But although Kim Jong-un is thought to have three children, they are far too young to succeed him and rule over the country. He also has a brother, Kim Jong-chol, but he has reportedly been deemed unfit to rule by his younger brother, the Supreme Leader. So his nearest relative is his sister. Meet 32-year-old Kim Yo-jung, who is not only his sister, but also one of his most trusted advisors. We saw her in Seoul, South Korea at the 2018 Winter Olympics, where the liberal press fawned over her and even called her the Ivanka Trump of North Korea. Well, their ignorance is not surprising and hardly praiseworthy, and it covers up some really nasty details of who this woman really is. While the mainstream media compared her to President Trump's daughter, others have called her, very simply, the Black Widow. She is a product of the ruling elite in what is probably the most repressive and despotic and cruel country in the entire world. The people are ruled with an iron hand through fear, and that fear is well justified. Once, for example... Kim Jong-un's defense chief fell asleep during a meeting at which the Supreme Leader was talking. That is a crime which is punishable by death. So he was executed by an anti-aircraft gun. And the people of North Korea are kept in poverty and starvation so severe that there are reports of cannibalism when all other food supplies have been exhausted. And as brutal as Kim Jong-un has been as a leader, Kim Yo-jong is reported to be even worse. She is thought to have played a significant role in helping Kim Jong-un take over from his father instead of his older brother. Her first public appearance was in 2011 at Kim Jong-il's funeral. And as I said, she helped to engineer her brother's accession to the leadership, although he was not in the line of succession. And she did that at the expense of her older brother, who was the rightful heir. After that, she was promoted to a top position at the head of the propaganda department of the Workers' Party of Korea. That made her already a very powerful person. Once, in 2014, when Kim Jong-un fell ill, she actually briefly took control of the country's affairs until he was able to resume them. And most recently, she was deeply involved in the preparations for the failed meeting between her brother and President Trump in Hanoi in February 2019. It appears that as a result of the failure of that meeting, Kim Yo-jong fell out of favor with her brother. But that changed, and by the time he went into surgery this month, she was his favored and closest advisor again. She mostly worked in the background, but in March 2020, Kim Yo-jong made her first public statement insulting South Korea as, quote, frightened dogs barking, unquote, after the country condemned one of North Korea's live fire military drills. She said, such incoherent assertions and actions only magnify our distrust, hatred, and scorn for the South Side as a whole, unquote. It looks like Kim was positioning her to succeed him if something should happen to him because in recent years, he was giving her increasingly important positions. So it may be that he knew that his health was deteriorating and he was preparing her to succeed him if something went wrong. It's possible. But her succession is not that open and shut because there's this. The ruling elite of North Korea have said in no uncertain terms, that they will never accept a woman as their leader. And there is another contender. Meet Kim's 65-year-old uncle, Kim Pyong-il, who was his father's half-brother and who has ambitions of his own. Kim Pyong-il retired last summer from the diplomatic service. For the last 30 years, he has been essentially in exile serving outside of North Korea as ambassador to Finland, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Poland. But last summer he retired and returned to North Korea. And he also stands in line to succeed Kim Jong-un. He is a blood relative. And there's one more remotely possible contender. His name is Cho Rung-hai. He is Kim Jong-un's official number two in the government. He is a member of the Politburo's presidium, the government's highest decision-making body, and he's first vice chairman of the State Affairs Commission, which is the country's highest governmental body. But Cho is outside the direct bloodline, and so he is unlikely to be able to bridge that formidable gap to seize power from the Kim family. So how will this play out? Well, as I said, the North Korean leadership is not likely to take kindly to a female ruler, and they have made that quite clear. But still, she is in the direct bloodline, and it is not clear that she isn't willing to fight hard and viciously for the top leadership position. And she is, as I have said, brutal, very brutal, and will no doubt do whatever it takes, including kill her adversaries, in order to achieve her goals. Her brother, father, and grandfather were guilty of the murder of millions and with that most extraordinary cruelty that is characteristic of North Korea. There is no reason to expect that she would rule any other way. In fact, there may be very good reason to expect that she could take that cruelty to a new and more horrible level than they did. Clearly, Kim Yo-jong comes by it naturally. So here we are. There is already a conflict of potential rulers and Kim's death could really start a major internal conflict. I don't need to tell you that North Korea is the furthest thing from a democratic society. It has been governed by a family of ruthless leaders for 70 years. And they have ruled with unconscionable cruelty keeping their people in abject poverty and leading the country in deep secrecy. And there's no hope that a new leader will be any kinder, any more beneficent to the people of North Korea. If anything, they are likely to be even more ruthless than those who preceded them. Now, there is one more possibility when we're talking about succession. And that is, in order to avoid a conflict this battle of the thrones, it may be that both Kim Yo-jong and her uncle will rule together in some sort of a shared leadership role. So we'll just have to wait and see. And as things develop, I will, as always, be giving you the latest updates on the latest news on the Friedman Report. And here's a quick little story about one city that is bucking the trend by closing things up, just as the rest of the country is trying to figure out how to open things up. The city is Minneapolis, which has just tightened its restrictions on public places. And it's closed ball fields, playgrounds, and skate parks, and they're posting signs on all the public sports fields in the city to say, CLOSE, DO NOT ENTER. The city is, they say, trying to disincentivize people from congregating and ignoring the social distancing protocols. The city's mayor, Jacob Frey, is reported to support indefinite closures. According to him, giving up summer is a small price to pay for saving lives. But the city just lifted restrictions on manufacturing and industrial operations that don't deal with customers. So what gives? One of the unanswered questions was whether science had any role to play in these decisions. It seems like an obvious question, since many doctors who have been studying the virus have suggested that summer is going to be the time when the virus is likely to die out. So the threat is likely to be greatly reduced, and it's an opportunity for people to get out. The truth is, nobody really knows, and it just seems like Minneapolis is swimming upstream and may be missing the opportunity to give its citizens a little relief before the expected resurgence of the virus in the fall. Just saying. Now it's time for a short break, and I'll be right back in just a few minutes with some stories about the wet markets right here in America, and a teacher on the West Bank who just gave his fifth grade students a grammar lesson that taught the glories of terrorism and murder. Nice. Stay tuned. I'll be right back with that story.
1: AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio.
2: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampappa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code loud for an exclusive discount or call
0: 844-869-9958. Now here's a story that might surprise you. You remember, of course, how could you forget, about the wet markets in Wuhan. In fact, wet markets are common all around China, not just in Wuhan. In any city, There are hundreds of such markets, nothing new there. But did you know that there are also wet markets in New York City and Chicago and San Francisco? Really? Tens of thousands of shoppers come to these markets and pick out live animals that they buy for food. And while they wait, the animals are slaughtered and they take home the carcass for dinner. Did you know that there are more than 80 wet markets in New York City alone? From the Bronx to Queens? Most of the patrons are immigrants from countries where wet markets are common. These markets are dirty. And just like in China, they sell live animals right next to hanging meat. And the awful, that means, it is awful, but it's spelled differently, O-F-F-A-L, That means the discarded entrails of butchered animals as well as blood and animal feces is just left on the ground. And the animals themselves that are still alive are mostly crammed into cages in the most inhumane way. How is this even possible in the United States? And why, since the coronavirus broke out, have they not been shut down? Well, one reason, inexplicably, is that These wet markets don't fall under the responsibility of the Department of Health. Although the vendors are certainly selling fresh food, it doesn't get any fresher. But for some reason, these markets are the responsibility of the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the New York State Department of Agriculture, neither of which seem to care at all. They are culturing their own little epidemics in our own major cities. And even in the face of a global pandemic, these markets are still going strong. Both New York and California legislatures are now working on shutting these markets down and that's a good thing. But the wheels of government grind exceedingly slow. And so the chances of anything being done anytime soon are doubtful. Maybe these state legislators should go for a walk through these markets. That would be a place for them to start. They could see the amphibians and the reptiles and the birds crammed into crates that are stacked high one on top of another right next to the hanging carcasses of freshly killed animals. And let them, the legislators, walk in the wetness of blood and offal. It might just move them to do something. New York, as I said, has about 80 such markets selling live goats, sheep, rabbits, chickens, turkeys, guinea fowl, partridges, pigeons, ducks, and quail. Tens of thousands of mostly immigrants from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. They are the customers. They are used to these types of markets, which exist in most underdeveloped countries, where they call them shooks or bazaars, and also, they patronize them here as well. And they don't demand a change because they're, they're used to it. But this is America, my friends, not a third world country where they allow such cruelty to animals and such unsanitary conditions where food is sold. Where are all the bleeding hearts and the tree huggers now? Where is anyone with a conscience? And where is the Department of Agriculture? Where is the Board of Health, state or federal? These markets are breeding grounds for disease. And now in the middle of the biggest pandemic of our lifetime, they should not exist. This is disgusting. And it needs to be stopped. Okay, I've had my rant on that subject. So here's something from another part of the world. It's from the Middle East. And it's another sign of the enmity that we've talked about a number of times before that keeps igniting in the reason for no other reason than the hatred that the Arabs have against Israel and the Jews. The Israeli newspaper Times of Israel reported a story that is shocking but not surprising. According to the Times, an Arabic language teacher at a Palestinian school in Hebron posted a grammar lesson for students, which they could review at home. Of course, they're working from home because of the coronavirus pandemic. The lesson plan glorified the 1978 Coastal Road Massacre that killed 38 Israeli civilians, including 13 children. Here's the backstory. In 1978, several Fatah terrorists, oh, first, Fatah was the terrorist group that was also known as the PLO and was founded by the terrorist leader Yasser Arafat and he was the man who first coined the term Palestinian to apply to the Arabs who fled Israel in 1948 when Israel was founded and he later became their president. Okay, this group of Fatah terrorists landed on a beach north of Tel Aviv. The beach was part of Kibbutz Magan Michael, which had created a wildlife sanctuary there. As these terrorists walked through the woods, they met American wildlife photographer Gail Rubin. She was also the niece of then U.S. Senator Abraham Ribikoff. The terrorists asked her for directions, which she gave them, and then they shot her to death. They walked on to the main coastal highway and fired at some passing motorists, until they hijacked a taxi and killed everyone in it. Finally, they hijacked a bus on Israel's Coast Road. The bus was full. It was carrying the vacationing families of some of the country's bus drivers. The terrorists forced the bus to stop, and once they got on the bus, the terrorists began shooting. In the end, they killed 38 civilians, 13 of them children, and wounded 71 others before they were stopped by teams of Israeli police. In the confrontation, nine of the terrorists were killed and two were taken into custody, including a woman, Dalal Mugrabi, whose name is, to this day, continually memorialized by the Palestinian Authority. Streets and schools are named after her and she is memorialized in speeches and, as here, in lesson plans. So getting back to the story, According to an Israeli watchdog group that analyzes Palestinian textbooks, this teacher created a lesson plan based on a 2019 Palestinian Authority Arabic language textbook. The students who were learning from home because of the coronavirus were required to download the reading comprehension and grammar lesson from YouTube on February 28th. In this lesson, the teacher, Nasser al-Rajabi, included a graphic of Dalal Mugrabi standing in front of a hijacked bus next to the body of a woman on the floor whom she had killed and pointing her rifle at the Israeli passengers inside. Below the picture is a sentence from the textbook. It says, quote, She took the flag of Palestine out of her bag, kissed it, and then hung it inside the bus, unquote. Even liberal and progressive activists including four of our own congressmen known as, quote, the squad, agitate for a so-called free Palestine. They support people like Dala Mograbi, whose only claim to fame is the slaughter of innocence. And yet she is lionized by the leaders of the people they call the Palestinians. And here in the lesson plan of fifth graders who are studying from home on the West Bank of Israel, there is a whole lesson that glorifies the terrorist attack in which 38 innocent people were murdered in cold blood and 71 others were injured. Justice in the Middle East, like peace, is elusive, and the rules keep changing as the world either ignores the real issues or caves into the anti-Israel propaganda coming from the far left and, of all places, the United Nations. Peace in the region would be nice. It would be wonderful. But it is unlikely, so long as one side refuses to come to the table and resorts to murder and terror to make their point, and then feeds the stories to their children to continue the legacy of hate throughout the next generation. It is a tragedy without end. Now here's another odd story from the same region in the Middle East. Just south of Jerusalem, near the city of Hebron, there is a religious site called the Cave of Machpelah, or the Tomb of the Patriarchs, which is believed to be the site where Abraham, first person to believe in one God, was buried. It is the world's most ancient Jewish site and the second holiest place for the Jewish people, after the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the Jewish claim to the cave and the building that surround it goes back to the earliest days of the Bible, according to genesis twenty three The cave and the adjoining field were purchased at full market price by Abraham, some thirty-seven hundred years ago. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah were all buried in the same cave of Machpelah that Abraham bought. These are considered the patriarchs and matriarchs of the Jewish people. The only one who is missing is Rachel, who was buried near Bethlehem where she died in childbirth. Today, her tomb is called Kever Rachel in Hebrew or Kabr Rachel in Arabic, and like the tomb of the patriarchs, it has been claimed by both Jews and Muslims as their holy site. When the Muslims controlled the sites during the Ottoman Empire years, they built a mosque there and a cemetery all around the tomb in order to ensure that they would have eternal possession. But today, although tensions remain high, both Jews and Muslims worship there. Now, if you go back to the original source, the Bible, There's a story about Abraham who approached a man by the name of Ephron. And he said that he wanted to buy a cave and a field that belonged to Ephron because he wanted to bury his wife, Sarah, there. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis 23. And Ephron said to Abraham saying, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is it between you, me and you? bury your dead. And so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, facing Mamre, was established as Abraham's possession. This included the field and the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field, which were within an entire border around. And afterwards, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, which is Hebron, In the land of Canaan. So Abraham purchased the land with 400 pieces of silver, and it belonged to him and his descendants. But, my friends, that was 3,700 years ago, and many marching armies and conquests and wars have taken place in the meantime. And during those wars and the times of peace between them, that property changed hands many times. During the Byzantine era, the site became a Christian holy site and pilgrims came to worship there. They are also reported to have found bones there which they took home with them as holy relics. And later on in 637, the cave of Machpelah was proclaimed a holy site by the Muslims and they built a mosque over it. And ever since then, the site has been under dispute. Today, it is divided into separate areas between the Muslims and the Jews. And now there is a new controversy and that's the story I want to tell you about. Here's what happened. Last week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited the site and he found that today the only way to access the large religious site are by climbing steep staircases leading to the entrances. If people in wheelchairs want to visit, they must be carried or they cannot go in. So Netanyahu proposed to install an elevator for those in wheelchairs who could not otherwise fulfill the purpose of their visit. The elevator would benefit all worshippers, whatever their religion, Jews, Muslims, Christians. But, and there's the big but, this is the Middle East, remember. The Palestinian Authority is protesting Israel's plan to make the cave of Machpelah wheelchair accessible. They're condemning it and saying that it amounts to Judaization of the site. As has happened at other Jewish sites that have been appropriated by the Muslims over the centuries, the Muslims have claimed this site as their own and don't want the Jews to use it, no less construct an elevator. How the construction of an elevator that would serve Christians and Muslims as well as Jews would make it more Jewish is beyond me. In fact, the Muslims referred to the visit by Netanyahu as an invasion. But listen, my friends, this is the Middle East. There is a lot there that doesn't make any sense at all. Not to the Western mind anyway. My guess is that there will be an elevator and then there will be a problem about who can use it and when. This is the Middle East and you never know what's going to happen next. Well, we just have a few minutes left before the break, so here's a quick update on how things are between the U.S. and China. We haven't talked about that particular thing for a while, though we've talked about China and we've talked about the U.S. Uh, The whole situation with the trade deal, well, it all went missing once the virus, this coronavirus, uh, became such a powerful subject in the middle of our lives and have destroyed virtually all other areas of conversation. Anyway, we all remember how elated we were when the first phase of the trade deal was signed. That was back in January. Wow, it was a big deal. And our farmers who had been waiting so patiently were thrilled. But that was before we knew that there was an epidemic Uh, of the worst kind raging through central China, and it was destroying their economy. Well, now there's a war of words going on between the two countries. China has accused the United States of planting the virus in Wuhan, and now has accused us of telling what they called barefaced lies about China's involvement and its responsibility for not only starting the virus, but not containing it in the first place and then not telling the rest of the world that it was happening and then sending chinese travelers whom they knew might be carrying the virus around the world to spread it to everybody else well anyway trump has said that the chinese government could have stopped the virus at its source and he promised to hold them accountable and that's where it stands today It's not much of a story, but it did make the papers this week, and so here it is. Now, it's time for a short break, and when I come back, I have a few stories about some really dumb things that people who should know better have been doing in the face of our new lifestyle that has been brought on by the virus. And I also have a story about a different kind of Memorial Day. So stay right there. I'll be right back.
1: What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner? feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything, because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now until now most sleep aids haven't worked but a new easy to swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company healthy cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep stay asleep sleep deep and wake up refreshed it's called rem sleep to get a free two-night supply of rem sleep visit healthycell.com sleep that's healthy c-e-l-l.com sleep
0: So we've talked about North Korea and the Middle East. Let's go back to the good old USA. Let's get back here, back home. Now, here's another story. In fact, I have several stories and I'll try to get them all in. The first one comes from New York City. As the story of COVID-19 goes on and on and will for some time, countless stories that come out about the pandemic will be told, some for generations. It's complicated and confusing, and there have been a lot of overreaction and stumbling over problems we never thought we would have to deal with. In the future, when we tell these stories, we'll simplify them, and we'll probably be able to make more sense of them. So let's start with this one. Last week, New York City came down with an order for paramedics who come to the scene where resuscitation is necessary, and the order was, do not resuscitate. It said this. While the paramedics were previously told to spend up to 20 minutes trying to revive people found in cardiac arrest, the change is necessary during the COVID-19 response to protect the health and safety of EMS providers by limiting their exposure, conserve resources, and ensure optimal use of equipment to save the greatest number of lives. Not cool. Everything that the paramedics are trained to do is all about saving lives, not letting them go. I know if I were going into cardiac arrest or if I had suffered a trauma that put my life in jeopardy, I pray that the paramedic who would come to help me is ready to give everything to save my life. And if I were an EMT called to the scene, being on the other side of the equation, I would have a hard time following an order that would compel me to just let a patient die rather than doing everything possible to save him. Standard procedure is apparently that if you have tried everything and a patient doesn't respond within 20 minutes, you can then stop trying to revive him because it's generally considered that a patient who spends 20 minutes without oxygen is likely to suffer traumatic brain damage. But any EMT, worth her salt, is going to use every one of those 20 minutes to save a life. It's why they do what they do. The original order was issued on April 17th. And the minimal standards that they reflected were looked on with shock and dismay. How in the world do you tell an EMT to walk away from a person who is dying? But it didn't take long before the New York Board of Health saw the light, and on Monday, April 27th, they released a statement that, while trying to justify the first order, released another order that rescinded it. The new order said that although the original orders reflected nationally recognized minimum standards, they don't reflect New York's standards, and for that reason, Department of Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker has ordered them to be rescinded, Well, that was pretty self-serving, but at least they got the job done, and they canceled the order. Good thinking, Dr. Zucker. One of the basic principles in medical ethics is for practitioners— In whatever they do to do no harm. It should never have been in question. And then we have another story. This one's from Colorado. It's about people doing dumb things for no particular reason. This one is from Brighton, Colorado, where Matt Mooney and his family were at a local park. He was playing t-ball with his six-year-old daughter and wife in a local park. It was a big park, about 30 acres of green space, and it was empty nobody else was there, just the three of them. And there was also a sign in the park saying that the park was closed to large groups, but it was available for groups of four or less to people to walk, to run, so long as they maintained social distancing rules. Still, a group of several police officers saw them and came over to the father. The little girl said, Daddy, I don't want you to get arrested. And he thought to himself, there's no way they're going to arrest me. This is insane. So he told her, don't worry, daddy's not going to get arrested. I've done nothing wrong. Don't worry about it. And then they arrested him. They told him that it was illegal for them to be there, although the sign clearly said that it wasn't. And they arrested him. These officers, by the way, were not themselves observing social distancing protocols. They stood together in a tight group, and they weren't wearing masks, and they weren't wearing gloves, and they touched him and handled him, and they pushed him into the police car. Then... About 10 minutes later, they released him, and he now wants a public apology. You think maybe he deserves at least that, maybe something more? And there's a principle here that goes beyond an apology. It's about people in uniform who feel the power of authority and use it inappropriately just because they can. This behavior by the police of Colorado was stupid and totally unnecessary. And it did some damage for no reason. They should have known the rules. They should have just left him alone. And that little girl is going to look at their fellow police officers a little bit differently from now on with fear and for no reason. It's a pity that such stupidity can make such a difference in the life of a child. The coronavirus has made changes in all our lives and America is going through a major upheaval. COVID-19 has taken over our lives in a big and very intrusive way. We've stayed at home, we've worn our masks and our gloves, and we have, some of us, been tested. And some of us have also met COVID-19 up close and personal. But now we're trying to get back to what is closer to normal. We're beginning to reopen America, and that's huge. It was a difficult choice. I know people who are willing to spend a long time in stay-at-home mode, as long as it takes, they say, if it will keep them from getting sick and dying. And I also know people who didn't stay at home at all, even though they were urged to, even though they were supposed to. They just needed to get out, and they lived in a state where it was possible to do that. But the real question, and we talked about it last week, was... How do we find the balance between keeping ourselves safe from the virus and reopening our economy so that people have jobs again and can support their families and don't have to depend on the food pantry or government handouts? And we can all go back to living independent lives again. It's a difficult balance. But when people say enough is enough, what exactly do they mean? Are they saying That freedom to live their lives as they choose is more important than their health or that of others? Do they mean that freedoms guaranteed by our Constitution supersede any community health issues in the face of a pandemic? Is their personal freedom more important than the health and welfare of their neighbors? Or do they mean something else? Well, the truth is that these are fair questions and there are no right answers. We're in the middle of a massive global experiment. And nobody has the right answer. Because the hardest part of all this is that we don't know how this experiment is going to come out. We're just at the beginning and we don't really know exactly what we're dealing with when we try to defeat this virus. So here's the bottom line. We can't stay locked in our homes indefinitely. And we can't stay away from our jobs indefinitely. We may feel safer in our homes, but many of us also feel trapped. We need to go back to work, and the country needs us to go back to work. So here's the question. Will this reopening of America also reignite the virus? There are some scientists and doctors who say it's a pretty good bet that if it does come back, it won't be until the fall. They may be right. But there are also those who worry that if we reopen too fast, too soon, the numbers are likely to shoot right back up again dramatically. So we have to wait and see, and we have to try. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, if we have a job to go to, we go. We bring our masks and our gloves, and we try to keep our distance from fellow workers, and we hope we will be safe, and we hope they will be safe. But we'll also be bringing in a paycheck again, and that's a big deal. There's a trade-off, of course, but it may well be worth it. And we may be pleasantly surprised. Listen, a lot of life is just a gamble, a crapshoot. And if we're ready to take a chance, then the reward may be a lot better than we ever expected. Sometimes, though, life plays dirty tricks on us. But if we can, we can learn to roll with the punches and do the best we can with what we've got. It's what we call life. Mostly, it's a balancing act, and we try to make the best guesses we can to keep the balance. At least, that's the way it looks from here. Now, we've got an election coming up. In all this confusion caused by the virus, did you forget? Not likely, I think. But there is also a pandemic to deal with, so politicians are juggling their messages. Here's an example. Because of the sudden rise in the number of COVID-19 cases in the food industry several major meatpacking plants have been forced to close suddenly because one or more of their employees were diagnosed with the virus. This is beef, chicken, and pork. So instead of being processed for the market, with no one to work in the plants, the animals are being euthanized and farmers are losing their livelihood. And now, there have been major alarms raised about our food supply and particularly about our meat supply. And we're being warned that the whole supply chain is at serious risk and we may end up with a meat shortage, a serious one. So the president is now using the Defense Production Act to keep the plants open. The unions and activists who want to keep the workers safe from the virus are objecting to it but America needs to be fed. That's the quandary. So the president has said that the government will provide additional protective gear for the employees and will also provide guidance. It was only this week that Tyson Foods, the largest meat processor in the country, ran ads in the national newspapers saying that our food supply chain was broken. There are only a handful of companies that provide most of the meat processing for the country. So when even one of them has to close, it can spell disaster for the supply chain in America. The next obvious question is whether the intervention of the president is actually legal, and is it constitutional? Well, the answer to the first question is yes, it is legal. And the answer to the second question is, we don't know, I don't think it's ever been challenged. Back in 1950, Congress passed the War Powers Act that gave the President extraordinary powers to requisition supplies and property and force entire industries to produce products for the war effort. And in 2013, President Barack Obama wrote an executive order that did exactly that. It said that in the face of a national emergency, or even if there were no emergency, the President has the authority to essentially commandeer such things as food supply chains, industry, energy, transportation, waterways, and so forth. In Executive Order 13603, President Obama made it clear that he authorized himself in Section 201 to take control of the following areas by assigning his various secretaries as follows. The authority of the President to allocate materials, services, and facilities as deemed necessary or appropriate to promote the national defense is delegated to the following agencies' heads. And then he named the Secretary of Agriculture with respect to food resources and all things relating to food, the Secretary of Energy with respect to all forms of energy, the Secretary of Transportation with respect to all forms of transportation, the Secretary of Health and Human Services with respect to health resources, the Secretary of Defense with respect to water resources, and the Secretary of Commerce with respect to all other material, services, and facilities, including construction materials. So, in fact, President Trump does indeed have the authority to do this, as provided by his predecessor in an executive order. And in his order, President Obama made it clear that it does not merely claim these powers during wartime or during a national emergency, but that these powers apply, quote, in peacetime and in times of national emergency, unquote, and that this authority shall be used to promote the national defense under both emergency and non-emergency conditions, unquote. Well, this is clearly an emergency. And I don't think the president is going to have any difficulty justifying his action to reopen the plant, providing that the companies make sure that the workers are given the best and safest working conditions to protect them from contracting the virus and getting sick. So over the next few days, we'll see how this plays out. I think the president is on the right track. He is trying to keep a balance between what will keep Americans safe, and what will keep the economy running. Both of those things are necessary, but it's very, very important that we understand it. Another item in the news this week, in Israel, the country observed Yom Hazikaron, that's the Israeli Memorial Day. It isn't like our Memorial Day. It's not a time for picnics and barbecues. It's really a day to remember the fallen. Because in Israel, as of April 27th, 24,969 Israelis have died in Israel's wars and at the hands of Arab terrorists. And this was all in the last 72 years. Israel has a population of only nine million. That's a lot of people to have died in a very short history and in a very tiny country. In Israel's first war, its War of Independence in 1948, 1% of the entire population at the time died defending the brand new state, which by comparison is 40 times more per capita than the losses we suffered in Vietnam. So when Israel's Memorial Day comes every year, it touches every Israeli. There is almost no one in Israel who doesn't know someone who was killed in a war or by the hand of a terrorist or who has a son or daughter in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, whom they know has a dangerous job every day that they wear the uniform. So it is truly a day of mourning and of remembrance for every Israeli. There's something very unusual that happens in Israel and Yom Hazikaron. At 11 o'clock in the morning, a siren sounds all around the country, and everyone stops what they're doing. If they are driving, they stop their cars, They get out and stand by the car until the siren stops. Even on the highway, even in the city, even in the country, traffic stops. People get out of their cars and stand there until the siren stops. And this is the way they show respect for the fallen. It is the most remarkable thing to see and to feel because it's an emotional moment that every Israeli shares with every other Israeli. And there's something else that's amazing. After a full day of remembrance and mourning, the following day is a day of celebration. It is Israel's Independence Day, and this year Israel celebrated its 72nd birthday. It's a very young country, and this is a day for picnics and celebrations in the parks and trips to the country. It will be different this year. The parks will be closed, the people will stay home, but the joy of independence in a democratic country where individual freedom is real, that remains, even with the virus. Well, my friends, we've run out of time, and I want to wish you all a good week, a safe week, and a healthy week. God bless. You've been listening to The Weekly Magazine on America Out Loud Networks. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.